0: The text is Titus chapter three, verses one through eight. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is God's word.
1: Thanks, Thomas, for reading God's word to us, and... and Hello again to all of you who've gathered here to worship our God. Um, we're approaching the end of this letter to Titus. Um, it's one of the shorter books in the Bible. And one of the, or, if, or really the resounding theme of this short book is this. It's the gospel leads to godliness. The gospel leads to godliness. In other words, faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ will lead you to live in ways that look like Jesus Christ. At several points, the author of this book, the Apostle Paul, he lays out in detail how to conduct yourself. If you're a believer, if you're a believer in the gospel, here's how you conduct yourself so that your life will align with what you believe about Jesus and about his life and death and resurrection. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing here in the section that Thomas just read for us. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, at the start of that section, he tells Titus, verse 1, remind them, remind them. That that is, remind the people that you're pastoring. Remind the church. Remind Christians. This isn't new information that he has for them. This isn't new teaching, but it's still challenging teaching because it, it runs contrary to some of our Most natural tendencies. So we need to hear it and receive it, and then we need to be reminded of it repeatedly. Chapter 2 of this letter instructed us on life in the home and in the church. And now, here in chapter 3, we have instruction for life in the public square, for public life, outside the walls of the church. Here's how this section breaks up very simply. In the first two verses, there's some reminders about how to live, and then in verses three to seven, there's a reminder about why you should live that way. So some reminders about how to live, and then a reminder about why, and that's as far as we'll get today. So the first thing we see here is some reminders about how to live, verses one and two. We'll read it again. Verse one, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. Paul starts out with how to relate to people in positions of civil authority and government. And the overarching command here is simple it's respect them, respect those peoples in offices of power and government. Take a, a humble posture of submission and obedience. Now, now I wonder, does that come natural to you? Does that sound appealing to you? Does that sound easy to you? Especially if you feel like you're you're, you're pretty sure that your political leaders uh, lie a lot and and, and they don't seem to have your best interests in mind. You're not convinced that they're upstanding people. Makes it even harder to respect them, doesn't it? This is always hard, and, and Paul knew that when he wrote it, because he, he lives under an unjust Roman government, and he wrote these words for people in, on the Greek island of Crete. That island was also occupied by Rome, by this foreign power. And that must have made it harder for them to respect their rulers. These rulers were not elected by them, but imposed on them through war and occupation. And yet still, the Apostle Paul says, submit, obey. And this is not a one-time command in the Bible. The New Testament talks about it a lot. It's that big of a deal that it gets repeated often. Romans 13, verse 1, says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Peter writes these words, be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors. You see the, the, the repeated, resounding message. And I suspect that sometimes we, we want to respect only those whom we judge to be worthy of respect. We say things like, I, I will, or we think at least, I, I'm happy to respect upright rulers. I'll obey upright rulers who meet my standard. But the Bible doesn't tell us to submit to wise rulers only. The Bible doesn't tell us to obey the best authorities. It doesn't limit the scope of that command. And, and that, that makes it more uncomfortable for us. It's it's submit to the rulers and authorities who are in power. The the ones you got are the ones you're being called to submit to. We naturally resist that command, don't we? At least I do. I can remember discussing with a a Christian man about an area where I thought he should, I thought we should, frankly, obey a government mandate even though we might disagree with that. I remember as part of this discussion, as we tried to work through, what does it look like for us to respect authority in this area? How do we submit? This Christian man looked at Romans, so we looked at Romans 13, I pointed to 1 Peter 2, and he said, said, no, no, I, I submit to the U.S. Constitution. He said, that's what God calls Americans to submit to. And and I thought, I get that, That, that's that's convenient, I suppose, but I'm not sure it lines up with what God's saying here, because God doesn't just call us to submit to uh, foundational governing documents, or our particular interpretation of those documents. He doesn't even call us to just submit to a set of encoded laws. No, he says submit to people, people, rulers, flawed rulers, with governing authority that's been given to them by God, whether you elected them or not, whether you personally like them or not, whether you voted for them or not. Let's not strip this command of its uncomfortable reach into our lives. Isn't it interesting that we're reading this less than a week after the midterm elections? Some folks are still trying to find out who who they're going to be submitting to for the next few years. They haven't even heard yet. The the timing of this message was not planned, certainly not planned by me, perhaps planned by God, who is calling us in November of 2020 to, (laughs) to submit and obey rulers and governing authorities. The question that arises for us is how exactly do we do that? How do Christ's followers respect rulers and authorities in our context, which is very different from first century Roman Empire? Well, I think we can start from the most simple, basic things. We can can set the bar really low. This occurred to me just recently because of something I saw. Um, As Christians, we can obey this command by not chanting, F the president as I've heard self-described Christians do in mass. They, they used a funny euphemism to do it, I suppose, and so they felt like it's no big deal. But how does that reconcile with what God is saying here? If we, if we can't even keep from cursing a ruler, how can we even begin to start respecting? It also means we obey laws, and, and not just the laws we agree with, It means we operate with humble respect, rooted in a belief that that God is sovereign. So that means that our government leaders are not in place by accident. Now the fact that that a particular set of leaders got elected or appointed doesn't mean that they are the best (laughs) or the worthiest of respect, but they are the ones who are being called to respect. Another question this raises for us is what limits do we place on that? Certainly there must be some limits on what submission to government looks like for a follower of Christ. Scripture provides some clear boundaries. Namely, if your government or your leaders or laws require you to sin, then don't do that. Don't submit to that. Don't obey that. And we get pictures in the scriptures of what this looks like. And the book of Daniel shows us perhaps the clearest picture of what this looks like. When the Jewish people were exiled in Babylon in the 6th century BC, the king of Babylon, whom whom they were called to respect and to submit to and obey. That king had a 90-foot golden statue built. And he commanded that at a certain time of day, everyone under his authority was to, quote, fall down and worship that golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. That's Daniel 3, verse 5. And and whoever did not fall down and worship that image was immediately executed. Some of you may know this story. There were three Jewish men who refused to bow down, and they were ratted out. You know, what's interesting is that those particular three men, they had served the nation faithfully. They had served the king. In fact, they themselves had a measure of authority within that government. And still, they were brought up on charges. They were accused of disrespecting the king, which was not true. They did not disrespect him. And they were accused of not serving the king's gods or worshiping the king's golden image. That was true. They did refuse to do that. And when they were questioned on all this and they were faced with imminent execution, here's how they responded. Here's how they responded at Daniel 3, verse 16. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, that is, if we are, in fact, going to be killed today, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. You know, it's funny, he doesn't say, they don't say, He's going to deliver us out of the furnace. They're hoping he's going to deliver them out of the furnace. But know They know ultimately he's going to deliver us out of your hand. You're not going to have the final say in our lives, King Nebuchadnezzar, even if we die in the furnace. Our fate is not in your hands. But if not, they said, if we aren't rescued from this furnace, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So what we see here from these three men, young men, it seems, is, is principled, God-honoring disobedience. It's disobedience to this authority, but it's not disobedience to God. And that's the same principle that the apostles would stand on centuries later, when, when, when some of them were brought up on charges for, for teaching about the resurrection of Jesus, even though they had been told not to. In Acts 5, 29, it says, Peter and the apostles answered the authorities, we must obey God rather than men. So you see why they disobeyed those leaders who did have God-given authority. Why did they disobey those leaders? It's because God's authority superseded theirs, quite simply. So, so, So when given this ultimatum, and this goes for us as believers, when given an ultimatum, obey them, that is? government authority or God it always has to be God and that, and that's deeply instructive for us but but I if we are really honest with ourselves sometimes sometimes don't we don't we resist submitting to laws and rules simply because we think they're dumb or they're inconvenient or they're going to cost us Sometimes I think we resist submission, not out of conscience because we fear disobeying God, but because we just think they're dumb rules and we shouldn't have to obey rules that we don't agree with. Did you, and I'm not expecting that there's one answer here. I'm, I'm sure that if I were to ask this of each of you, I might get a lot of answers. But did you agree with every single one of the health mandates that were handed down over the past couple of years? Like, did every one of them resonate with you? And you said, yeah, that's wise, and I'm glad that's in place. If you're a homeowner, this is a pet peeve of mine, it's kind of random, but if you're a homeowner, how do you feel about your city's laws around construction permits? Do they frustrate you? I mean, I mean, I I need to pay the city for permission to make improvements to my property which I paid a lot of money for, and I'm already paying taxes on, but I have to pay more if I want to, and I I can't make those changes to my property if the city tells me no? Hmm. Here's the thing. Is God calling us only to obey those laws that we agree with? Because if you disagree with such laws as the ones that I've just mentioned, aren't you tempted sometimes to just ignore them? And be like, no, those are stupid laws. I obey the good laws. <laughs> but, but again, how does that reconcile with Paul's commandment in Titus 3? Are, are we only called to obey when we agree? That, that certainly was not the apostles' attitude. Their attitude was, we will obey God, and, and usually obeying God will mean obeying rulers. But then there are going to be those times when obeying God will require me to disobey these rulers, and we'll do that when we need to, even if it costs us. And for Christians across history, it has cost a lot at times to do that. Granted, it may seem like I'm oversimplifying things, and I don't mean to oversimplify things, but... There, there certainly are instances where we will need such prayerful discernment. It's going to be hard, right, to, to, to navigate certain situations and, and, and say, what, what does it look like for us to be faithful here? I think many of us encountered that over the past couple of years. I know as, as elders and deacons in this church, we certainly did. When New York was banning gatherings over a certain size, we had to prayerfully consider how to respond to that. What does that look like for us as a church? How are we faithful to God and the call to, to not forsake gathering together to worship him? in the face of dangers to our health and the health of our community, and in the face of very specific rules being handed down to us from the state. As a leadership team, we sought to honor God's word. We also sought to honor the government officials that he had put in place to govern over us. And so our decisions, I'm sure, were not perfect, no doubt but we did seek to live out Titus 3.1. and this passage and others like it, in 1 Peter and Romans 13, we're, we're, we're guiding passages for us as we try to navigate that season. And it was instructive for us. Well, verse 2, as you go through the rest of this passage, it doesn't just park on and focus on our relationship to authority and rulers. It goes beyond that. Verse 2 goes beyond to how we relate to other people. Look at what it says there. It says, Paul says, remind them to speak evil to no of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. If you have believed the gospel, he's saying, then don't use words to malign or misrepresent or belittle anyone. Whether those are spoken words or typed words, posted publicly for all to see, or, or DM'd privately to a trusted confidant. It could look like a, a tirade, or it could look like just a passing comment. We can, we can speak evil with a passing word. Sometimes we don't even need to use words to do it. And then we can rationalize those, those, those belittling, deriding words. But notice how all-encompassing this command is. It says, speak evil of no one. That's absolutely no one without exception. If We take it literally, and I think we should. We don't have, you and I don't have a right to trash or belittle anyone. Whether it's people we disagree with or even, even people who have hurt us. God does not give us the right to trash them, to attack them. With our words, Paul goes on to say, "Avoid quarreling, right? Stop, stop fighting." Romans twelve eighteen says, "If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all." That is, with all people. Second Timothy two twenty four echoes that. It says and, and, and applies it specifically to leaders within the church. It says, "The Lord's servant must be must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach." patiently enduring evil. That last part, that's the kicker. As if, as if it's not hard enough to say don't be quarrelsome. He says, patiently endure evil. That means don't, don't just instigate and initiate fights. He says, no, no, no. Don't even retaliate. Oh my goodness. Certainly he's saying don't be that guy or that woman who welcomes conflict, that, that person who can't resist hitting back Whenever they're they they're clapping back, I guess as the kids say, every time that they're insulted, that that person always has to have the last word. He's saying, "Don't be that guy." Perhaps you know that person can't resist coming back, who can't resist always wants to have the last word. Do you know? Some, maybe if you don't know someone like that, maybe 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 you're the, maybe you're that person. But Proverbs twenty-one nineteen says, "It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome woman." Now, this is, the, this is Solomon, and, um, and, and he's talking about women here. But I, I, would, I would guess that many of the sisters here would say, hey, this, this, this could be flipped around, too, you know. <laughs> it, is, it is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome man. You might say, why, why does this person always have to, why does everything have to turn into an argument with him or with her? Well, why do they always need to win? Paul says, "Remind followers of Jesus not to be that person. Don't be the one who always needs to be right and always needs to correct other people who are wrong." Maybe you've seen this image before. This cartoon, uh, assuming this is this is uh, someone at the I, uh, someone at the, at a computer looks like a guy, his wife is in the room and saying, "Uh, are you coming to bed? And he says, I can't. This is important. She says, what's going on? He says, someone is wrong on the internet, which means I have to correct them. I need to fix this. And what's implied in all of this is that this person needs to be right. This person needs to show others where they're wrong and and. I laugh a little bit at that because I can see that impulse in my own heart. I wonder if you could see that impulse in your own heart. Maybe you, maybe you control it better at some times than others. Maybe you don't get into fights on the internet. You get into fights in the dining room or in the office. Verse 2 goes on to say, and it's pushing in deeper here. It says, be gentle. Be gentle. That, that, that gentle... Um, is not a uniquely feminine attribute in our culture. I wonder if it might be communicated that way. It is a Jesus-y attribute. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, our Lord said, I am gentle. That's who I am. It's among the ninefold fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5. Gentleness. Gentleness involves a deep caring uh, for others, an empathy that leads to treating others kindly without seeking to do harm to them. Verse 2 goes on to say, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. This has to do with being considerate. Courtesy sounds like just being polite. It has more to do with being considerate, seeking the interests of others. Of course, you might find that easier with people who are like you or people who can do something for you. But Paul specifies it's all People. And the perfect there, perfect courtesy, means total, complete consideration. So in other words, you and I are being told, be ready to keep yielding your own advantage, your own personal advantage for the sake of others, Even, even when that's not reciprocated. I once talked with a brother about what it would look like for him to set aside his own comforts and his rights to serve people who are weaker and more vulnerable than him. And he said to me, when are they going to start setting aside their rights for me? And, and I understood where he was coming from because it's a very big ask that the Lord is laying on us here. He's saying, sacrifice your desires, your, your rights for them with no guarantee that you're going to get your turn later. And so his brother was resisting against it. He says, when's it going to be my turn for others to lay down their rights for me? But it's that's what the Lord's calling us to. I don't pretend that it's easy, but, but when, when, when will they be inconvenienced for me is the wrong question. The right question is what do they need? What can I do to consider their good? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that that there are voices in our culture that say this is absolutely crazy. And I think as we come to the end of this message, we're going to see why this actually makes sense. What's the, what's, what's, what's the reason behind these commands? We'll get there in a moment. But for now, this is pretty countercultural, isn't it? I mean, would you say that in 2022, our nation is known for gentleness? That our society, well, we are known for submitting well, for speaking evil of no one. We, we are known for avoiding quarrels. We like to bury the hatchet and keep peace. Is that true? Watch a political rally, and tell me if that's the vibe you get. Or, or, or revisit, I hope we don't have to revisit, all, so all, all the political ads that have been airing for the past several months. What vibe do you get from those ads? Or, or, or take your, your favorite news source, whatever news source you prefer to listen to, it, it's almost like you could expose yourself to all that and have kind of like an anti-Titus 3 checklist in your hand and just go through it and be like, "Mm mm-hmm, quarrelsome, yep. Speaking evil, oh, yes. Resisting obedience, oh, yes. So much of the discourse around us, it's it's consumed with, with quarreling, isn't it? And it's consumed with outrage, outrage at how evil the other side is. And how stupid the other side is. I believe news platforms, they model that well for us, and social media encourages us to embrace that kind of spirit. It's almost, I mean, I wonder, it's almost like they profit financially from generating anger. Could it be? Is it possible? <laughs> I recently heard it called the angertainment industry. <laughs> The multi-billion dollar anger attainment industry. And, and, it's, and it, frankly, whether we like it or not, it is shaping us. It has shaped the way that folks feel and talk, hasn't it? It's shaped the way that parents uh, interact with their school boards. <laughs> and in some ways, it's shaped the way members of Christ's body even relate to each other. With belittling words, with dismissive insults, with hostile anger, with fear of anyone who might hold a different position on a particular topic. Do you see that happening? Do you see it being shaped by those, by those influences? But, but how about here at New Hope Fellowship? And this is a personal question for us as a community, for each of us as individuals. Are we being discipled by our culture to live that way? In relation to the government, in relation to family members, in relation to strangers even, our neighbors, in relation to each other right here. Influenced by the anger, the outrage, the fear. I'm not, I'm not saying that there's nothing to be concerned about or even indignant about in our society, But if we are not responding to whatever it is that concerns us in our society, if we are not responding with humble speech and with conduct that reflects Titus 3, we are not aligned with the gospel. We're not. Scripture shows us a better way. Scripture shows us a way to speak with boldness, courage, and gentleness and humility, and consideration for others. Jesus embodied that, didn't he? And so have others, to varying degrees, who have known Jesus and have been taught by his spirit. Um, a particular hero of mine is John Stott. John Stott was an Anglican uh, minister, and uh, a British Anglican minister, um, theologian, author, died about, yeah, 11 years ago now. I think to some degree he embodied Titus 3, not perfectly, but remarkably. So much so that even people that would have disagreed with him on foundational issues saw something of Christ in him. There was a piece in 2004, a piece written by David Brooks, who's a columnist for the New York Times. He wrote a piece back in 2004 that, that highlighted John Stott and who this man was. And I want to read to you a section of it. David Brooks writes, When you read John Stott, you encounter first a tone of voice. It is a voice that is friendly, courteous, and natural. It is humble and self-critical, but it is also confident, joyful, and optimistic. He is always bringing people back to the concrete reality of Jesus' life and sacrifice. He goes on, to read Stott is to see someone practicing thoughtful allegiance to scripture. Scott is so embracing. And that's always a shock. He says, especially if you're a Jew like me. The author of this piece, David Brooks, is a Jewish man. Secular, at least at the point when he wrote this. He says, when you come to something on which Stott will not compromise, he says, it's like, being in, in, it's like being in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, except that he has a backbone of steel. Stott didn't accept homosexuality as a legitimate lifestyle. And of course, he believes in evangelizing non-believers. He's pro-life, even though he's not a political conservative on many issues. Most important though, He does not believe that truth is plural. He does not believe in relativizing good or evil or that all faiths are independently valid. Instead, he believes that truth has been revealed by God. These are really interesting observations by by Brooks. He says, and this is true of Stott, he courageously stood up for biblical truth against against things like secularization and relativism and injustice. And he did it consistently with thoughtfulness, with humility, with, with a kind of gentleness. And this is, this is why he's a hero of mine. He was a, a deeply Jesus-y man, not a perfect man, but a Jesus-y man who was instrumental in many people encountering Jesus and, and knowing Jesus. And what makes this piece so interesting to me is that it was written by a secular Jewish commentator, but, but Stott had so impacted him that, that Brooks came to find Stott's way of living compelling. It, it encouraged him to start investigating the claims of Christ. In fact, Brooks today says that around 2014, he embraced Christianity. And Stott's testimony, although he had already been dead for a few years by then, Stott's role and testimony had played Apart in David Brooks coming to believe the gospel and embrace Jesus as Lord. There's an effectiveness, it seems, in this kind of approach to being present in the world as a believer. And yet what makes this kind of, of winsome presence in the world so important isn't just that it's compelling or effective, no, what makes it important is that God commands it. God calls it good, and he says, this is how you will live if you are being shaped by the gospel, regardless of how people respond to it, whether people respond to it well or not. Because this kind of living, and I'm not saying we all need to look exactly like John Stott, I'm saying we need to look like Jesus. And to the degree that John Stott looked like Jesus, we should look like him. (laughs) And in the ways that he did not, we can reject but this kind of living, it adorns the doctrine of our Savior because it aligns with the gospel of a gentle, self-denying Lord. The last thing we're going to see, it's the very last part of this passage, we see a reminder about why. We got some reminders on how to live, now a reminder about why. Why should we live this way? It's, so, it's not just counter-cultural, it feels so counter to my nature. Well, here's why. Verse 3, for we, says Paul, he's talking about himself here, all of us as Christians, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Who, who, um, who are the people that you're most likely to want to speak negatively of? Or, or to fight with, or, to, or, or the people that you're most likely to lack compassion for. Isn't it probably those people that you see as wrong, foolish, malicious? Well, Paul says, I get why you would be prone to speak evil of those people, but he says, just remember something, you, you are those people, or at least you were those people. <laughs> he says, my fellow believers, what you, that was you. It's a reminder saying, remember, remember those people that you look down on who you find so easy to criticize, you were that guy, you were that woman. You wonder how they could be so misled. You wonder how, but that was you. Maybe, maybe you were mistaken in, in different ways. Maybe your malice and, and your envy uh, showed up differently than theirs, but you were just as foolish, you were just as malicious, you were just as, detestable, because you too were under the power of sin. And so from God's standard, not our our relative standard, but from God's standard, you're the same. You're the same. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it in in his paraphrase of the Bible, the the message. He says, he he does verse three this way. He says, it wasn't so long ago that we ourselves were stupid and stubborn We were easy marks for sin, ordered every which way by our natural desires, going around with a chip on our shoulder, hated and hating back. That was us, says Paul, until God intervened. We see the intervention there in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul is saying, remember who you were, remember where you came from, and you didn't make yourself any better. No, the loving kindness of God appeared. And, and, and when it showed up, it redirected us. And more than that, it, it regenerated us. It made us new because God had mercy. Mercy that was motivated by love. He says he justified us, verse 7, by his grace. That is, he chose to call us righteous. Not because we were righteous. We went from being wandering orphans to being Heirs. Yes, God's grace saves you, and and it trains us, but it also humbles us. God's grace humbles us. It reminds us that we've been lifted up from a very, very deep, dark place. Paul reiterates this again throughout his epistles. Ephesians 2, I'll just read it to you. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Once again, remember where you were? But God, the same word he uses back in verse 4, that but. I've heard someone say there's a lot of big buts in the Bible. This is what they mean. There's a lot of important buts, a lot of important B-U-T's, where God intervenes. But God, being rich in mercy, you're all too mature to laugh at that, I realize. I appreciate that. I'm rebuked, I know. because of the great love with which he loved us even when you were dead in your trespasses, even when we, I should say, were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's all grace. It's all grace. And that grace cost Jesus everything. He willingly died the death of foolish, disobedient, malicious, envious, hateful, people like us. Our Savior stepped in to rescue us from all that, to rescue us from the penalty and the power of our sin. It was all him. This is what Paul is saying. If you're happy with where you are right now, experiencing the love of God and the presence of Jesus in your life with a future inheritance that no one can describe, if you're happy with where you are, just remember, you didn't get yourself there. It was all done for you by God who had mercy on you because he loved you. Paul says it again in a slightly different way in 1 Corinthians 6. It's the last passage I'll read. Or do you not know, he says, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And just when self-righteous religious folks are about to say, amen, God, don't let those people in, he says, and such were some of you. But what changed? You were like that, but what changed? You turned over a new leaf? No. You, you decided to, to do better? No. He says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, someone else had to do all that. God himself had to wash us and pick us up and set us apart and declare us righteous in the name of Jesus who died for us. So, so here's the takeaway. Here's the, here's the logic in Titus 3 for why we uh, submit to rulers even when we don't like them or why we stop fighting with people even when we disagree with them. Stop criticizing people even, even when we really know they're wrong. Here's why we learn to be gentle and considerate towards all people. Here it is. It's because we were saved by grace. So he says, remember, you might forget this. We might forget this. But you are no better than the people you have trouble liking. You were just shown mercy. And if you've experienced that grace, let it, let it humble you and let it keep training you to see and treat others accordingly. These instructions, as difficult as they are for us to implement, are not optional for any Christian. A combative follower of Jesus is an oxymoron because a gentle Savior trains gentle disciples. A critical, fault-finding Christian is at best one who's forgotten who they were, and at worst, not a Christian at all. How much better is it for us to remember that that what we deserved and how God dealt with us on the basis of mercy and then begin to view others on the basis of mercy? That's Paul's gospel reasoning here. And through the gospel, we get the power to live this way. That's what verse 5 and 6 and 7 are all about. The Holy Spirit is remaking and renewing us, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and yes to what God says is good. So so we can actually, we can stop criticizing others and we can start asking the Lord to show them the grace that he's shown us. I'll close with this and I'll, I'll make it personal for each of us. If you've believed the gospel, you don't need to belittle others to feel better about yourself anymore because in Christ, God says, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. You don't need to win every argument anymore because in Christ, you have true victory. You don't have to be desperately defending your rights because the God of the universe is committed to your good. You don't need to desperately hope that your candidate gets into office because your king reigns eternally. You can submit to whoever's in office because you know who ultimately rules. And you can patiently devote yourself to what he calls good because you know that his appearing is promised to you and he will make all things new. God's grace reminds us of all this and much more so that we can live lives that are aligned with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's ask him to keep patiently teaching us. Our Lord, would you do that? Would you patiently instruct our hearts? You know if there's resistance in our hearts, even as we think about particular people, particular parties, or particular ideas that that leave us outraged and angry and we want to fight and we don't want to trust you enough to live gentle and courteous lives and speak well of others. So so teach us, Lord, teach us. We submit ourselves to you and to your sanctifying power. Align us with the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.